Earlier this week, Greg spoke about impermanence and how the seeing of impermanence is such a crucial part of how the mind lets go. The instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, which he read and reminded us of the in the refrain part of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a a section of the sutta that's repeated for every single exercise, for every single mindfulness practice the Buddha offers, he repeats this refrain. And a part of that refrain is recognizing the impermanent nature of experience. I'll read it again. It's repeated for... I think there's nine or so um, exercises in the body, maybe six, I can't remember the number. (laughs) And then the exercise for feeling, for mind state, so it's repeated those times, and then four or five in the section on dhammas. So it's, it's... it's the, the refrain that is, it is it's like it, it gets pounded in. And as Joseph said at, at one point in his reflection on this sutta, when the Buddha says something that many times in that space of time, we should pay attention. <laughs> and so a piece of this is around observing impermanence. And I'll read it with respect to the body. One abides observing in the body its nature of arising or abides observing in the body its nature of vanishing or abides observing in the body its nature of both arising and vanishing. Likewise for feelings, for mind states, for dhammas. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So this connection between the impermanence, seeing of impermanence, and non-clinging. In another um, sutta, the Buddha is a little more clear about how this connection between freedom and the experience, seeing, connecting with recognizing directly the experience of impermanence, how they're related, and what's the unfolding of that? How does this happen? And in this case, in this teaching, the Buddha is uh, using the teaching that Jaya mentioned last night on the five aggregates. Form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. The Buddha says form is impermanent, Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Mental formations, volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Seeing thus, seeing the impermanent nature of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, consciousness, one experiences disenchantment, towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, disenchantment towards perception, towards volitional formations, towards consciousness. 
experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. The mind is freed. So this uh, passage points to the recognition of impermanence leading to disenchantment. And disenchantment leading to dispassion and dispassion leading to freedom. And so this is essentially describing a process, an unfolding process that's natural. It's the nature of seeing impermanence is that disenchantment follows. The nature of disenchantment is that this dispassion follows. And the nature of dispassion is freedom. And so it's kind of describing a path or a, a sequence of unfolding that happens in our practice around these words, disenchantment and dispassion. And so those are the words I'd like to explore with you this evening. Disenchantment and dispassion. The Pali for disenchantment, Nibida, Nibida. The word pointing to, I like the translation disenchantment because it does point to how uh, the mind begins to The mind it points to how the mind has been enchanted, essentially by delusion, enchanted by the views, the ideas, the the usual um, ways of relating to the world as permanent, as reliable, as self. And this disenchantment comes about as we begin to thoroughly understand that the normal ways that we've been approaching happiness, the normal ways that we've been engaging in the world are not a very reliable way to find happiness. And so as we look at our experience with mindfulness, part of this rub of the dukkha that we feel. We start to see that 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 dukkha is related to how we've been engaged in wanting things to be a certain way, wanting to get rid of things, to have things, to hold things. And our minds start to recognize that has been useless. It's It's not been an appropriate or useful way to find happiness. And the, this teaching around impermanence points to how important impermanence is in helping to undermine those usual ways that we relate to experience. These three 
characteristics of experience. Uh, three um, ways that we tend to misperceive experience. Jaya mentioned them last night. The, this word, the word, using them as misperceptions, vipalasa, the misunderstandings that we carry. We tend to take what is permanent impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable to be reliable. We tend to take what is not self to be self. This is the, uh, the, the misperception that is, begins to be undermined by the perception of impermanence. And they're, they're connected, these three, these three misperceptions because we take things to be permanent, because we take things to have some kind of um, lasting quality to them, then we will assume them to have some kind of reliability. And as we open deeply to the impermanent nature of experience, we begin to understand very directly that these experiences that are changing, that are impermanent, are not reliable. They're not a place where we can find lasting happiness. And so the mind begins to open to that understanding of unreliability. All experience, all conditioned experience, unreliable. All conditioned experience, impermanent. All conditioned experience, because impermanent, is unreliable. Somehow, the sense of believing that holding on to something, the, the views or the beliefs underlying these misperceptions, that holding on to something will make me happy, will make me happy. Again, that sense of me exposed as a misperception, partly through seeing what we take to be me, that taking something to be solid or stable as me, there isn't anything solid or stable in there. What we take to be me, when we start to look at it, it just falls apart. And so the impermanent, the the nature of seeing impermanence is that it begins to undermine these misperceptions helps us to begin to let go. We see, basically, that our habit of clinging is based on misunderstanding and illusion. And so we become disillusioned. Another word, perhaps, for nibida. Another translation we could use for nibida. Disillusioned. We become disillusioned. We become disenchanted. disenchanted with what we had been enchanted with, the the idea that I can find some kind of lasting happiness through this manipulation of of my world. So we see that we've been caught by the spell of ignorance. Basically, ignorance being that weaving of illusion, ignorance about 
phenomena, conditioned phenomena, believing it to be permanent, reliable, and self. And so seeing that ignorance is happening is one of the steps towards this disenchantment. We may not necessarily be able, the the seeing of ignorance, actually the first times we see, we really can clearly see that ignorance had been happening is when it falls away. We get a sense of a different way of experiencing things and it's sometimes it's like, wow, this seems so clear. How could I miss this? How, how, How could I not see this? That holding on to things is suffering. It just seems so obvious. And then, two minutes later, <laughs> we're clinging again. And, and, you know, the first few times I experienced this, it's like, wow, I guess it's not that obvious. Because <laughs> here I am, clinging again, believing somehow that this is useful, that this is helpful, even as it's painful. And so... But the falling away of that illusion, the falling away of that delusion or that ignorance, when it comes back, sometimes we get really frustrated when it comes back because, you know, as I, in my experience, having said, well, gosh, it seemed like it was so obvious. How can I not see it now? And we we almost try to, we tie ourselves up in knots trying to get rid of that ignorance. But one of the things that that, that difference when ignorance falls away. We've seen a different way of being. When it comes back, now we can know it's ignorance. We can see delusion working right there. We can feel the way it creates suffering. And so this is the first step. Sometimes we we see how we're clinging to something, taking it to be permanent and reliable, and yet having seen, perhaps, sometimes in many of you reporting, almost everybody, I think, has been reporting that there have been times of seeing things in a different light. But then, of course, the delusion comes back. This is not a mistake. It's part of the way this gradual path works. The seeing of the delusion at work helps us to understand why the delusion is not so helpful and how it creates suffering. And so, in a way, if we use this enchantment analogy, what we start to see here is we've seen the magic You know, the curtain's been pulled back and we've seen the magic. And yet now it feels like the curtain's back drawn. And yet we know it's magic now. Even if we can't see how the levers are being pulled, we know it's magic. So this is a difference. This is a difference. So this is a step in direction of disenchantment. Even though we're caught or woven in the spell, we at least know it's a spell.
Bhikkhu Bodhi has a description of the experience of disenchantment. Nibbida, the Pali word, Nibbida signifies the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena which follows when the illusion of their permanent pleasure and selfhood has been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and vision of things as they are. That sounds like a nice description of disenchantment, the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomenon, which happens in seeing the illusion. Well, in my um, experience, and certainly in the experience I've had in talking to yogis, to retreatants, this terrain of disenchantment is often not a smooth place in practice. Becoming disenchanted, it turns out, is kind of painful. There's so many different levels of enchantment, actually. And so the road is bumpy for a while, in fact. Basically, this disenchantment, you know, in terms of looking at things from the perspective of impermanence, and the unreliable nature of experience being impermanent. It's like at very deep levels in our system, in our organism. Not just at the intellectual, obvious, day-to-day levels, but at very, very deep human-conditioned levels, deep in our makeup, Our system does not like this truth of impermanence. And when it starts to see it and really get that depth of that impermanent, unreliable nature of experience, our system kind of rebels. It goes, no, no, that is not, it's not that way. It should not be that way. And it's not, it's not happening at our rational level. It's happening much more deeply this no. And so there's a lot of um, kind of exploration in the practice, in the path of practice, on the path of practice, as we start to open to these levels of impermanence in experience. There's a lot of different kind of emotional or um, uh, relational aspects to meeting impermanence. Different flavors of our relationship as we start to see this truth of impermanence. I think it's connected to deep forms of resistance of seeing that truth. It's that real like some like screaming from deep inside is like, no, there should be some place to hang on to. There's got to be some place to land, some place where I can feel safe. So there's a lot of different kinds of um, flavors of relationship that seem to happen for a lot of us on the path. 
one of the translations for Nibida is disgust or revulsion, sometimes translated that way. That's not my preferred translation because it creates or it, it kind of has this, those words for us often have a sense of aversion in them. But the feeling of Nibida can sometimes have that quality, the feeling in our experience when we start to see the ways in which our minds are grasping after this impermanent, unreliable experience, our minds kind of shudder at that. Our minds kind of go, oh, don't do that. And so it can have a quality. There can be a quality of that almost revulsion or disgust kind of feeling. We start to kind of connect with or recognize There's nothing for me in this experience. There's nothing worth clinging to in this experience. And the mind that, the kind of, the the deeper part of our system that still wants to cling, this part of our system that's starting to see it just feels this kind of like, no, it's just, there's nothing there. Just this, this sense of, like, oh, there's nothing there to, worthy, nothing worth clinging to. So it can have this quality of disgust. But other flavors of, this dis, of, of what happens as we're in the terrain of disenchantment. There's a lot of different flavors of this. Sometimes the flavor can be one of um, fear. You know, with, with seeing just how fast things are changing. And that there isn't any place to land. Sometimes the mind can can feel like it's in free fall and a sense of fear there. Sometimes as strong as terror even. Sometimes the quality is, um, one of my teachers in Burma, Sadhu Janaka, uh, named a quality of homesickness that can happen in this place of disenchantment. And that, that resonates for me because it's kind of like the ways that we used to be at home in greed, aversion, and delusion, those don't work anymore. And so there's a kind of a wishing that we could go back there sometimes in this place before we've really understood the freedom of non-clinging there's a kind of a, a wobbliness to the experience, a sense of there's nowhere really that's reliable to land and our mind still wants to land. And so there's this kind of homesickness for, I wish I had that delusion back. I wish I had that ignorance back so that I didn't see that this was the way things are. So homesickness can be a kind of a flavor there that we might see. Disinterest can be another flavor. Just as we just see sometimes the quality of rapidly seeing, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, things happening in the mind. Seeing, smelling, touching, tasting, things happening in the mind. It's just like six things happening over and over again. And it's just like, okay, enough already, I've seen this before. Do I have to keep watching this? Do I have to keep watching these six things over and over and over and over and over and over again? 
Our mind starts to get disinterested. Some of that flavor of disinterest, at least in my own experience, is kind of like the loss of our old interest, kind of like in the realm of that that homesickness. It's like we used to get really interested in these highs and lows, and it's like those aren't doing it for us anymore. It's like the... The, the pleasant isn't like giving us a kick and the, the unpleasant isn't like making us want to snap into control anymore. It's just the mind isn't interested in engaging in the ways that it has. And so the quality of disinterest can come in there, sometimes feeling of boredom, sometimes feeling like wanting to pack up and go home. It's like I'm done. Just nothing to see here anymore. So many different relationships as our minds begin to kind of unhook from these very deep levels of clinging. And the practice unfolds through the noticing of the relationships, through the seeing of all these different ways in which we're kind of feeling like, oh, I wish I had that back, that quality of feeling homesick, or this feeling of disgust. It's like, this is not a mistake. This is the mind beginning to learn about letting go of something that it had held on to very deeply, very tightly. So our practice deepens through seeing these kinds of attitudes in the mind around becoming disenchanted. And as the mind more thoroughly lets go of those habitual ways of clinging, it moves in the direction of this other other word called dispassion. This other word that experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Dispassion, again, it's, it's useful to unpack the word a bit because, you know, dispassion on the surface of it would I want to not have passion? You know, do I even want that? If that's what freedom is about, is that what I want? Again, the dispassion is connected to the loss of ways in which we had been passionate. We had been passionate about greed, aversion, and delusion. There's a, there's a weakening and a loss of, of that. The term for dispassion, and in this place of dispassion, basically the mind is really thoroughly starting to understand that holding on to impermanent, unreliable experience just doesn't make any sense. So the old patterns of craving and attachment begin to weaken, to fade out. And this 
this term is used sometimes for dispassion, as a translation for dispassion, fading out. Because the term itself, viraga, actually has more the meaning, the literal meaning of fading out. I believe it's used in more ordinary way, that that term viraga, to refer to how the dye in a cloth fades over time. And so that image of a cloth fading, and we think about how does a cloth fade? You know, we wash it in soap, some of the dye comes out in the in the water. The cloth is just a little bit less bright than it was, but initially we don't really notice the difference. Then a second washing, a third washing, some exposure to the sun, we might start to notice that it's not quite as rich of a color as it was. Very gradual process, this fading out of dye. And I think this is meant to point to us that the process in our practice is also gradual. A gradual fading of these attachments and accumulations and cravings. There's kind of maybe even different levels of kinds of attachments we have that that may fade at different times in our practice. The talk I gave on relying on this, abandon that, almost speaks to that, where we kind of can let go of something more painful by potentially kind of holding on to something that's more wholesome and more helpful. And that fades by relying on this. There can be a fading of that. But then we start to feel the rub or the uh, suffering or the holding or the attachment here. And perhaps there's another relying on this, abandon that. So there's this gradual kind of releasing of various levels of attachment. And the the Buddha spoke about this in his own experience, he said, I abandoned the craving for sense pleasures. I removed the fever for sense pleasures, and I abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other beings who are not free from lust for sense pleasure, being devoured by craving for sense pleasure, burning with fever for sense pleasure, indulging in sense pleasure, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sense pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. And by divine bliss, I understand him to mean the very deeply concentrated states. So there's a delight that surpasses even that. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior. 
And so this, this passage kind of points to these different levels of things, of attachments that can fade. The attachment to sense pleasure. The attachment to states of concentration. The attachment even to um, even any kind of state of insight or understanding. Pointing to that teaching on the simile of the raft. Where we let go of the dharma even. Non-attachment to anything. So this, uh, this fading away happening in a gradual way, but it's not even just that it's like with dye, there's a kind of a continual weakening of the dye over time. And uh, it doesn't maybe quite feel like that in the practice, that it, it can sometimes feel like this dispassion or this sense of understanding, you know, that, oh, yeah, nothing to cling to here, that the, the delusion comes back. And so there can be times um, within a day or even within an hour a particular sitting that the mind shifts from being clearly disinterested and just not being not attaching to things to being caught again, caught in the grip of wanting. And this speaks to the power of delusion, the power of ignorance, how, how deeply conditioned it is in us. But again, as I pointed out before, having seen some of that fade, when it comes back, there's a different relationship to it. We can understand it now as being caught. Being caught in that web. The web of ignorance, enchanted again. And so we can go from feeling like nothing to pick up, just deep freedom, to back, completely caught again, struggling with aversion. This is the nature of the unfolding of our practice. And it's not a mistake. It's just how our minds work. And it points to, to some extent, the power of our conditioning. And so we really have to respect that. To not somehow feel like it's my fault that this aversion has re-arisen. It is the nature of that conditioning, the strength of that conditioning. So the text says, through dispassion the mind is liberated. And so liberation, freedom, Actually, in certain texts, the word for dispassion is almost equated with liberation, with nibbana. There's one text. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, 
the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And so all of those can be kind of seen as synonyms for nibbana, different ways of expressing that that freedom, the freedom from relinquishing of all attachments, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Another definition for nibbana, which we've mentioned I think quite a few times here, is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is one of the most succinct definitions of freedom that is offered in the texts. We can experience this absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. Maybe first we experience it through the ending, seeing the ending of, I mean, we really clearly see the, the ending of greed or the ending, we, we watch a craving fall away, the ending of an aversion, or, or we see a delusion and it just falls apart. A belief in our minds just crumbles when it's seen as a belief. And so we can sometimes feel the release from that craving a release from wanting, a release from aversion. It can feel, it can, have, it can be a lovely experience, that release. Feeling like we're re- being released from a vice grip. Let go of, by that craving, by that clinging. And so that's sometimes some of the first ways we really feel that sense of the ending or the, the absence of greed, aversion, or delusion is when we see it ending. We see greed, aversion, or delusion falling apart, feeling that freedom as it ends. And then as the mind more thoroughly starts to understand the uselessness of clinging, more thoroughly starts to understand through understanding the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience, that any kind of picking up is already suffering. The mind begins to understand this absence of greed, aversion, and delusion in another way, not through seeing it end directly, not through seeing the cessation or the ending of greed or aversion, but through understanding the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. The non-arising, the not picking up of craving. Freedom is not about getting anything It's not even about getting that experience of release. Maybe we can start to understand this non-arising through a little thought experiment. Maybe think back into childhood. You know what? When you were young, you know, in the three to six age bracket, 
What was your favorite toy? And remembering how attached and how much, how much connection and, you know, carrying it around with you everywhere or however you related to that, to that toy. I had a, a, a teddy bear that was about the same size as I was. And I think I rubbed all the fur off of it and it lost its button eyes and I still carried that thing around with me everywhere. There's a period of time in our childhood where we begin to maybe forget about it sometimes, leave it, but then we go back to it. There was another favorite toy I had when I was a little older, a dollhouse with these little dolls and furniture and I, you know, I loved arranging the furniture and making stories up about what the dolls were doing in the various rooms. I spent hours hours with this thing and there was a period of time where um, I had to hide that because the rest of my preteen friends the 12 year old were starting to look down on dolls and it was a painful kind of transition there you know, that I, I, I still loved playing with my dolls, but it wasn't quite as satisfying as it had been when I was eight or ten. A little bit of fading out there. A little bit of disenchantment with it. Not quite as engaged in the stories anymore. And so for you, you know, remembering back in your childhood of some toy that you really had connected with. And the, the slow kind of letting go of that. So that's the disenchantment place at a certain point of like losing interest. That's the, the disenchantment place in the, in the letting go. Just like we still see it in the corner of our room and it's like, yeah, not, not so interested anymore. So there's that quality of disinterest. Dispassion, the quality of dispassion is more like as an adult here now like how long has it been since you thought about this toy this thing from your childhood as an adult we don't even think about picking up that toy there's neither interest nor disinterest in it it's just not relevant anymore That's the quality of dispassion. It's just not interested. There's no no relevance. It's not interested or disinterested. There's just no relevance to picking it up. There's no bearing on the unfolding of life. This, in uh, hearing Jaya's talk last night, she quoted from the... um, one of the Mahamudra poems that she read the other week, she quoted again. And I want to read a line from that because as I heard it last night, it resonated for me very much in this place of neither interest or disinterest. The noble way of Mahamudra never engages in the drama of imprisonment and release. 
It's not even interested in release anymore. That feeling of that letting go. There can be a place in time and practice where we're almost looking for the clinging to see it let go. And the mind starts to just realize not picking it up. Not to pick anything up. So this practice that opens us to disenchantment, dispassion, takes us right through all the ways in which we are enchanted. We don't get to be disenchanted by not seeing how we have been enchanted. We have to see how we've been enchanted for the mind to begin to release. So we have to feel the enchantment, feel the unsatisfactory nature of that enchantment. Right in the midst of our suffering is this lesson on how we're holding on, how the enchantment is working, and how the mind can free itself from it. Bhikkhu Bodhi has another beautiful quote about realizing freedom. And in this uh, quote, he uses the phrase realizing the unconditioned, the unconditioned being another um, way of speaking to Nibbana, freedom. Though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned, it must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara, with suffering, to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can be attained, can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara by turning one's gaze towards dukkha and scrutinizing it in all its starkness, the understanding of the conditioned is the way to the unconditioned. So it's not a mistake, this struggle in this terrain of disenchantment. It's the nature of the path. And so freedom, the definition of freedom, realization of the unconditioned, relinquishing of attachments. There's some some, uh, quotes I'd like to read about Nibbana, but primarily I want kind of to highlight before I read them that Nibbana is primarily described in terms of what it is not. It's the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. 
It is non-clinging, the ending of craving. It's not described as something, as some state or something we get. It is the absence of, the ending of suffering. So here's some, here's some uh, quotes about Nibbana. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared. One aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for one thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, There's nothing to be added to what has been done, and nothing more remains to be done. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. This is peace. Another definition of Nibbana experiences no mental pain and grief. That sounds pretty good. Visible in this life, attainable here and now, not some transcendent kind of state. Visible in, possible to experience in this very lived experience. That's how I take that visible in this life. There's another poem that I want to read to you that is a description of a liberated person. So these last quotes have described liberation, the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And in this one, this is a poem in the Sutta Nipata, uh, the poem that's a, it's a set of 16 poems called the Atakavaga, found in the Sutta Nipata. And just read one, a portion of one of those poems, <clears throat> which describes what a person is like when they're free. So this is a different perspective on freedom. It's not describing the qualities, but what a person is like. And the question, a question comes to the Buddha. Having what vision, being of what character, is one called peaceful? Tell me about the supreme person. So he's asking the Buddha. And the Buddha responds, A person who is not angered, not frightened, not boastful, not fretful, who gives wise advice, who is calm, restrained in speech, who is indeed a sage. A person who is not attached to the future, who does not sorrow over the past, 
who finds solitude amidst sense contact and is not guided by fixed views. A person who is retiring, not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy, not impudent, not arousing contempt, who does not engage in malicious speech. A person who does not relish pleasure, who is not arrogant, who is mild and of ready wit, who is not credulous, who by nothing is repelled. A person who does not take on the training in hopes of material gain, who is unperturbed if they get nothing, who is not hampered by wishes nor greedy for flavors. A person who is even-tempered, ever attentive, who does not suppose that in the world they are equal, superior, or inferior, who is free of conceit. A person for whom there are no tethers, who knowing truth is not tethered in any way, and in whom no wishes are found for existence or non-existence. This is someone I call peaceful. They are indifferent to sense pleasure. In them bonds are not found. They have overcome attachment. This is someone I call peaceful. So again, this is a description of a person, but again, it's described a lot by what's not happening. There's a few positive things in here, mild and of ready wit, attentive, even-tempered, but mostly not deceitful, not covetous, not greedy. What's not here? One of the things I like about this kind of description is that it leaves a lot of room for personal expression. The absence of greed, aversion, and delusion doesn't mean that we lack feeling, doesn't mean that we lack kind of inspiration and connection to the world. In fact, it seems to be just the opposite. Greed, aversion, and delusion tie us up in internal kinds of spinning and knots. And there's a lot of energy that's eaten up by greed, aversion, and delusion. As greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, there's a tremendous release of energy towards connection, compassion, care, expression of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Expression through compassion, wisdom, love, generosity. We've talked about, Greg mentioned and Rebecca has mentioned these folks in the Sagain Hills that we've in Burma that we've come across. and I don't know whether I've met fully enlightened beings or not up in those hills, but the expressions of their freedom, and two in particular that I'm remembering in this moment. One, we walk into the monastery and just the monastery, it felt like I I was walking into an ocean of tranquility. It tranquilized me to just enter the gate of the monastery. And then I met the monk that lived there. I just wanted to hang out with him. He was so still. 
and content. Michelle McDonald named him the Angel Sayadaw. And another that Greg mentioned the other day that Michelle McDonald named the Happy Sayadaw. You know, he was just continually laughing and one day we were with, uh, we, we, we would go to, to visit. I was um, the manager on the retreat and uh, we would go to visit the, uh, the monks, take, take hikes in the afternoon and go to visit them. And one afternoon, um, several of us went to visit and one of the others that I was visiting with asked Miatang Sayadaw if we could take his picture. And he agreed, and he wanted he wanted to go outside, and so he, you know, we went outside, and um, one of the people kind of aimed the iPhone at him, and and in Burma, monks are not supposed to smile for photographs. He couldn't do it. <laughs> he kept having to cover his mouth. He just could not not smile. really happy, very different beings, both expressing freedom in their own way. And so the absence of desire from the world, this dispassion, doesn't mean a lack of feeling. I think really the release from greed, aversion, and delusion creates the conditions for more connection, more love, more care, more compassion, more joy, more tranquility, peace to express. So what's your expression of freedom? What's your expression of freedom? The sage regards nothing in the world as their own and does not grieve because what what does not exist. Not blindly following religious teachings, such a one is truly called peaceful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.